In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from across Ukraine, discuss Russia's so-called cronies unit, and I interview Ukrainian sociologist Anna Kavit on the experience of Ukrainian women in the armed forces. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists on The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 28th of March, one year and 32 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, foreign correspondent James Kildner, and our interviewee, Anna Kavit, a sociologist from Ukraine who's a visiting research fellow at University College London. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the war. Good afternoon and welcome to Ukraine The Latest, a podcast and Twitter space on the war in Ukraine. My name is David Knowles and I'm a journalist at The Telegraph newspaper in London. With me to discuss the latest news from Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols and foreign correspondent James Kilner. Dom, can I start with you? What's the latest news from Ukraine? Well, hello, David. Hi, everybody. So last night, another wave of drone attacks against Ukraine, principally around Kyiv, by the look of it. Sergei Popko, who's the head of Kyiv's military administration, said 12 drones had been fired towards the city, but air defence had identified and destroyed all of them around the capital. There was some footage of, of wreckage, drone wreckage, that fell in one of the western districts of the city. Uh, it started a fire, non-residential building, the mayor, Vitaly Klitschko, later posted on Telegram that it was a, a shop. So it started a fire. No casualties reported yet. And uh, Vitaly Klitschko said that also. No no casualties. A little bit of confusion. So that's that was talking about 12 drones. But the general staff of Ukraine's armed forces in its morning update, daily morning update, said that 15 Iranian Shahid 136 drones had been fired overnight. So a different number, but also said that Ukrainian forces had destroyed 14 of them, implying obviously that one one had got through. So so not sure exactly what's happening, but it sounds as if very minimal damage and no no casualties. 
Secondly, so t- today's uh, British Defence Intelligence update is talking about tanks, Russian tanks, and the, the way they've been used in the, the fight for the town of Avdivka in the Donbass region, sort of 50k southwest of Bakhmut. So British Defence Intelligence saying that Russia's 10th tank regiment has likely lost a large proportion of its tanks in that battle. This regiment is part of the newly formed 3rd Army Corps. So this is the uh, well, 3rd Army Corps was the first major new formation stood up since uh, August last year. So we think 3rd Army Corps is is a uh, a bit of a bit of a mishmash not necessarily saying that that doesn't mean that it's it's not not capable but it it didn't have any it wasn't for it wasn't there before the war and hence had time for procedures and personalities all to bed in so the MOD is saying that according to open source reports saying that the that the third army corps has been dogged by ill discipline and morale i mean i think that that's not exclusive to the third army corps from what we've seen but it also added that the 10th tank regiment's losses have been largely due to tactically flawed frontal assaults. This is their words, tactically flawed frontal assaults, similar to those seen in other recent failed Russian armoured attacks, such as around Vuladar. Now, I mean, we've we've seen this before, that a bit like the personnel tactics they're using around Bakhmut and elsewhere, just getting up and running at, at the Ukrainians, you know, that doesn't work if they've got a, a sensible defence planned. I mean, they are relying on mass to get through, which can work, but it often doesn't. And it's extremely costly, even when it does work. So trying that with tanks is another order of magnitude more difficult. I mean, it is tricky managing one tank, believe me, let alone a troop, a squadron and a regiment. So trying to trying to get that together, if all you're doing is saying, right, up and at them, boys in the tanks, let's go. I mean, you're just asking for trouble. Put that together with what we've seen recently with these old T-62, T-54-55s getting out, being brought out of storage and in some cases out of museums. And they are just relying on mass again with tanks. So I think Ukraine would be quite content that that is what they're doing. If they're not using armour properly, armour has to be protected by infantry. It gives as much to the infantry as it gets back, or rather it gets back from the infantry as much as it, as it gives. They have to work as a team, tanks and infantry. Plus, you then need an umbrella of air defence and engineers and all the other bits and pieces. But but tanks and infantry very, very seldom work independently of each other. And if that's what they're doing, then that is a that is a gift to the to the Ukrainian defenders. On the subject of tanks, so Britain's Challenger 2, they've started to arrive in Ukraine. As we, we mentioned this yesterday, but Alexei Reznikov, Ukraine's defence minister, said that this morning. And he put out some photos of himself and some other dig- other officials. In front of a Chally 2, there was also an American striker, infantry vehicle, German Marder. There was also the US Cougar MRAP, mine resistance, ambush protected, sort of big, heavy 4x4s, the first of 37 from the US, and they, they've got a V-shaped hull. So basically any blast from underneath, uh, the blast blast is directed away from the crew compartment. So the, the crew and the and the, the soldiers in the back will hopefully be, be protected. I mean, they have proved their worth. So the Cougars, and there was also on view in this in this photograph some Senator armoured cars, some Rochelle built armoured cars that were donated by Canada. Uh, Canada said they'll send 200 of these senators. Again, similar thing. I mean, it's getting getting people to the fight as safely as possible. I've got some diplomatic updates later, but I'll uh, I'll take a pause there. Thanks, Tom. Just very quickly, could we go back to the comments from the British intelligence update? Because I, it'd be good to hear your thoughts on well. So bad morale, I get that in in a tank regiment. I understand the floor tactics. You explained it. What does ill discipline mean in a tank crew? Would you talk through that? I only ask because I can't really picture it. If well, I can picture it, 
<laughs> I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily specific to tanks. That might that may well be a a, a general descriptor of ill discipline throughout the armed armed forces. I mean, if it is tank specific, then there have been instances of um, of drivers maybe maybe having a drink or two and uh, and taking the cab for a spin. That has happened. I'm not suggesting it happened at all in the Royal Scots June Guard circa 1994, but I know it has happened in some places. But I think that comment about ill-discipline was generally re- referring to, as we've seen, this, this sort of culture of, of bullying and um, particularly towards newly mobilised and conscripted soldiers. It's, it's a fairly harsh environment for soldiers who join the Russian army. So I think that's what it's referring to there rather than anything more specific. Thanks, Tom. James, can I come to you? You've been doing a lot of work on uh, news from Russia in the last few days, so there's a lot to talk about. Could we start with your report on this so-called cronies unit? Hi, David. Yep, as as you say, I've done a, I was heading up the Moscow desk over the weekend. We had a really busy weekend. I think I followed about seven stories, um, including this rather colourful story about so-called cronies Italian or, or unit within the Russian army. This was flagged up by a Russian military blogger who has about 600,000 followers on the Telegram social media seeds. And they're very influential, these these Russian military bloggers. They really um, shape Russian public opinion about what's going on in the war, etc. And he'd been given by a so-called source um, a list of the regional and uh, Russian parliamentary politicians who have signed up to spend some months with this new tenant called Cascade, which was set up in October-November time last year. Now, I, I did dig some more research, etc., and, and it turns out this Cascade Battalion is an aerial reconnaissance unit. It basically flies drones, and it's located somewhere in the Donetsk region of occupied Ukraine, or perhaps the Luhansk region. It, it's been given a sort of secret tag so they they don't reveal their exact location possibly because so many politicians have signed on the server now what this unit is doing is flying these drones from somewhere in from a secret location somewhere in Donbass over the front line and collecting information and then relaying it back to the so-called soldiers who are monitoring this information on their monitors and tv screens then relaying it to ministry of defense of the ministry of defense command structure etc what it's not doing is fighting on the front line. Now, this is a really, this was a point that this Russian military blogger was trying to make. He called it a crony battalion. That's his, his, his words. And he said it was being used, it had been set up and was being used by Russian politicians to give the impression that they'd gone down to fight on the front line to the uh, to people back in Russia, to the Kremlin, etc. Where, in fact, they're just sort of posing around in military uniforms, getting getting medals, etc. But they are in a very safe location, dozens of miles, maybe, maybe even more than that, behind the front line, behind the real action. And it's just another sort of insight into how various people are trying to leverage the war. It was it's the Kremlin basically told politicians off that mobilise in September, the first mobilisation in Russia. We have to keep reminding ourselves since 1941, and it really ruffled the Russian public. He'd basically been told that there was no war in Ukraine. This was a special military operation. It was going to all going to be over in a few weeks, and it didn't. You know, they didn't need to be concerned about it. 
And yet here was the R Russian government ordering a mobilization of people. We now know 325,000 men were mobilized in this, in this drive. Many of them sent straight off the front line and killed straight away. At the same time, the Kremlin told regional politicians and parliamentary politicians they had to fully get behind the war. They couldn't just sort of ignore it. They had to publicly go out there and show their support for it. And the Kremlin said to them, and if you don't do this, the United Russia political party, which is the main political force in parliamentary politics and regional politics in Russia, Putin is the head of it, etc., will not be financially supporting your next uh, election, many of which are in September. So hence, uh, within a month or so, five or six weeks, this battalion is formed. And now we have the rather curious sight of all these politicians sign up to fight for a month or so, so they can get their photos and, and military uniform and medals, etc. Uh, very interesting. Thanks, James. What was the reaction of the people on the Telegram group then? I mean, were people not annoyed that this was happening? How, how did they take it? And then once you've answered that, it'd be good to hear from Dom, actually, just to add some depth to un understanding of drone units. But James Kilner first. So the Telegram sort of scene, they, they, they are, they've been picking fights for military defence and the way the war is won. And so they were obviously very scathing about it. The story didn't get much traction in the Russian opposition media, websites, etc., which I was surprised about. Partly because I think people have been reporting that the Russian politicians have been trying to look like they're fighting when in fact they haven't. Partly because it's set up by a guy called Dmitry Savrilin, who has a rather tawdry reputation. He's a multimillionaire. He owns various, through various family members. He owns various construction companies in Russia. He, he is very pro the annexation of Crimea. He owns a yacht club and some hotels in Crimea, and he's been personally sanctioned by, by the West. And he's one of the richest Duma deputies in Russia. He's a multimillionaire, etc. And ironically, he was also born in Mariupol, which is just down the road, as we know from Bakhmut, and is, is, was bombed in, into submission earlier this time last year. So... I think there's disappointment, obviously, from some people in Russia, but also a resigned expectation this sort of thing happens. Thanks, James. Dom Nichols. Yeah, just as, as James was talking there, it made me, made me think it might be worth just taking a, a very brief segue into drone controllers. Now, I'm not talking about the, this Russian unit at all and why they may or may not want to go to Ukraine, but be far enough away from all the fighting. So, so park that for one moment, but let's have a look at just very briefly drone controllers. I mean, nowadays, the big the big drones, I'm not talking the, the handheld stuff or even the kind of the battlefield drones that are launched and, and used locally to the battlefield. I'm talking predominantly Reaper, as we know it, in US and UK service that are controlled via satellite back in, in another country. So Reaper is now flown by the British Royal Air Force based out of out of Waddington, RAF Waddington, up in Lincolnshire. I've been there and I've been in the been in the, when I was serving this was not, not as a journalist, they wouldn't let me anywhere near it. But when I was serving, I was in the control room in the actual boxes where they were flying the missions. And um, you know, they they take it very, very seriously. Of course you would expect them to. But this issue of where is the front line now is a very real one. So for example, a decision in the last couple of years by the British MOD means that Reaper 
pilots and, and operators now qualify for medals. They get they get the campaign medal for the theatre they are supporting. I think that I think they don't get the clasp because they're not actually it, you know, physically in the theatre, but they do get the medal. And it's caused, as you'd imagine, some controversy and it's stirred debate about well, well, what what does that mean? Do you, to qualify for a medal, do you have to have skin in the game? Do you actually have to physically be in in danger? Your does your proximity to danger, i.e., on the battlefield, does that qualify you for? for serving in that theatre and do you then the medal and and so on and so forth and the yeah the idea is well does does being detached in literally in another country or you know if you're operating out of Creech Air Force Base in Nevada if you're if you're operating via satellite you're you're in Creech you're in Waddington but you're controlling drones over wherever Iraq Afghanistan wherever it's going to be you know does being detached physically detached from the theater allow you to focus your mind better such that you make better decisions as decisions that might lead to a loss of life does it make you does it allow you to evaluate the information better because you're not in physical danger or does is it that is there a moral component here that says that you if you are going to take life you have to be prepared to lose lose your life as well basically so you know do do you take better decisions in a calmer less frantic atmosphere or is that is that not very sporting you know question mark maybe that's an outdated notion but also if you are effectively in the theater if you're if you're lincolnshire but you're or nevada and you're you're getting the medal for for operating does that then mean that that you are you are a, a target uh, and you know i'm not talking about russia here i'm not you know there's no question about legitimacy i've got into hot water you may remember about suggesting what are or are not legitimate targets in ukraine so park that for a moment but you know what i'm saying is that are the drone operators in waddington or elsewhere are they then are they then susceptible to more danger because they are seen as combatants so all these issues are, are, are swirling around and you know where is the front line and, and so on and so forth but so that's I mean, there's no answer there. It's for, for us to talk about and discuss and society to, to take a view on about where, whether you need whether you morally you should have skin in the game. But the only other thing to consider is that the, the, the mental pressure that these people are under, because when you go, if you're a soldier and you go away on tour, soldier, sailor, airman, aviator, whatever, marine, blah, 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 a service person and you go on tour and you physically go into the theatre of combat, then you, know, you are you are to, to a certain degree sealed away from your normal life which is not not great but also it's perfect because you you can then focus on the job at hand and get on with it to and to a certain degree you know you leave leave home behind you but the mental pressure these drone operators are under they are right in the in the zone on the mission and then a few hours later when the mission's done the shift is over they're downtown and a very good friend of mine had we've all seen the movie about the the person who sort of you know, can't can't quite get it together when they after a difficult mission when they're down uh, when they're they're shopping a bit later on that that exact thing happened to a very good friend of mine who was in Creech operating drones in over the Gulf region and then a couple of hours later he said he he, he flipped out in the supermarket when his kids were arguing about what cereal breakfast cereal to buy so you know these people are under mental pressure so so they are experiencing a degree of pain and worry and and, and anxiety so therefore. You know, that's that is where the argument started for they, they should be they should be rewarded or or at least this should be noted in some way hence the medal but you know all these all these issues are very live in the military circle and societal circles now um you know, i welcome anyone anyone's comment about it i've got i'd say got no answer here i just offer offer those couple of thoughts and an observation from that i, that I saw firsthand from a from a friend of mine 
Thanks, Tom. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what responses we get. And I think, as James has expertly explained this story, I think it's interesting the sort of the slight lack of reaction it's had in Russia. Maybe there's maybe there's something to be seen there. And I think um, I, I'm sure this isn't the last we've heard of this. I'm sure we'll be coming back to this, James. Going from the so-called cronies battalion to a different Wagner-esque group, you've written a story, James, about the Kremlin-installed head of Crimea creating his own mercenary unit. Can you tell us about this? Right, yeah, that was another story which popped up over the weekends, and 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 I think this, so this is a small unit. It's about three hundred people. Apparently, it's been uh, deployed already to parts of Kherson region, just above Crimea, etc. There's there's been quite a lot of media on this unit in Russia. Russia, you know, some of the big Russian TV channels went went and interviewed these guys as they were training in the forest, etc. Now, this is, in, this is clearly inspired by the relative success and high profile of Wagner, the Kremlin's bigger mercenary group, which is, we think, deployed about 50,000 people to the battle zone, taking new casualties, but are leading the Russian advances in. But so the um, Kremlin installed head of Crimea, and he's been there since 2014, since the annexation, seems to have been given an official green light to set up his own mercenary group or militia group however you want to frame it which is officially linked in with the uh, ministry of defense so it's kind of called a reserve unit and they have to sign a contract with the mercenary group and also with um the uh, ministry of defense and as far as i could work out as far as my reporting led me to believe it's primarily made up of um ex-wagner mercenaries including the full one of um, the wagner Volna commanders in Africa previously, where Volna used to do a lot of work, he is apparently heading this group. So I think what we're seeing here is uh, it's another semi-official way of trying to mobilise men and trying to uh, um, sort of encourage men in, in, into Russian men into their various armed forces. These guys might not want to join the, the Russian army real and yet they might be happy to join this sort of more renegade private militia type so it's 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 another sort of effort by the by, by the ministry of defense the kremlin to boost the number of simply the boost the number of fighters um on the on their side thanks james can we go to dom just for some diplomatic updates now i think and i know james you'll have some things to say as well about the central asian states dom nichols yeah, so just um, something here from Nicola Smith, our, our East Asia correspondent. You'll see there's a bit in today's paper and she's going to do some more, I think, over the next few days. She's been looking at Chinese reaction to Putin's statement at the weekend on Saturday talking about moving Russian nuclear missiles into Belarus. And yesterday I was I was suggesting that it'd be interesting to see what China say about that because they I think they, they would view the summit last week in Moscow as a as a great success and they want things to calm down they want they want things to move in accordance with their 12 point peace plan which we think is, is a bit rubbish anyway but you know China sees itself as in the driving seat here and i was suggesting yesterday that putin suddenly going back to the nuclear rhetoric would not be welcome so nikola has suggested or she's written said beijing has repeated its calls for 
quote, a peaceful settlement of the Ukraine crisis, their words, crisis, uh, unquote, following Putin's comments on Saturday. And uh, Mao Ning, a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson, said yesterday, quote, last year, the leaders of the five nuclear weapon states released a joint statement in which they affirmed that a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought and stressed the importance of the avoidance of war between nuclear weapon states and the reduction of strategic risks. Sorry, risks. Um, So far, so uncontroversial. But um, Ms. Mao goes on, quote, under the current circumstances, all sides need to focus on making diplomatic efforts towards a peaceful settlement of the Ukraine crisis and work together for de-escalation. Now, I think that's quite telling. She's talking about the current, very clearly, the current circumstances and reiterates again, diplomatic efforts, peaceful solution, de-escalation. I think those are the three things there. She finishes obviously with a dig at the US has to do that. But I think the main message was what I've just said. So asked if the deployment of nuclear weapons in Belarus would complicate China's proposal, Ms. Mao said that Beijing was in talks with all sides, would continue to play what she said was a constructive role and urged the US to help create the conditions for peace talks, quote, rather than add fuel to the fire. So, yeah, unquote. So there you go. There's the dig of the US, as expected, sting in the tail. But the middle bit, when she's talking very specifically about current circumstances, and of course, this is this is cleared from the very, very top so current circumstances, diplomatic efforts, um, de-escalation. So I think that was very interesting that China have, have quickly come out and said that. I mean, this happened in a, in a I think, in a either a press call. But regardless, I mean, they, they don't answer questions they don't want to. So the fact that they've made that statement, I think it was a, a direct um, response to Putin's comments on Saturday. The only other one to mention on the diplomatic front is France has said this morning, they're going to double their munition supplies to Ukraine. So Defence Minister Sebastian Lecornu, he said this morning, he's talking specifically about artillery. I don't know if the, the pledge to double goes elsewhere, but he said, quote, we are doubling the delivery of 155 mil shells to bring it to 2,000 a month from the end of March, unquote. OK, right. So good. Oh, it's all good. But 2,000 a month, we think Ukraine are firing about 6,000 a day. So these these figures are, are slightly out of date, but we think they are fairly accurate. We think Ukraine are firing about 6,000 shells a day, 155 mil shells, with about three times that number coming back from the from Russia. So uh, you know, a lot of artillery is still going on. So France upping their or doubling their supply to 2,000 a month. I mean, it, you know, it is good. This is this is under the banner of good news, but you know, brackets. See footnote one. Footnote one could do more. So I think there's you know, still a long way to go. There's a big discussion at the moment around Europe about how to support Ukraine in terms of industry, military, industrial support, and whether to open old factories and so on and so forth. So, so yes, we we, we note this. This is this is good, but you know, there's still a, a lot more to go. Of course, France is is one country. There's other other countries doing other bits and pieces. And this is a live debate, as I say. But um, yeah, so good from France. But um, let's see what else you got. Thanks, Dom. James, can we come to you? That wasn't the only piece of Chinese diplomatic news we wanted to talk about. You've been looking at another aspect, another another thing that the Chinese are doing. Would you talk us through it? Yeah, sure. I, I think you're referring to this um, Central Asia summit that China called last Wednesday. It sort of um, it, it went rather under the radar. Um, Obviously, overshadowed by the uh, uh, Xi Putin meeting in the Kremlin, but on Wednesday, this, at the same same time as uh, Xi was in in Moscow or Aaron to leave Moscow, China called what they have termed the first Central Asia China summit for May. Now, there's been plenty of China Central Asia summits 
in the last decade or, or so, China is very interested in Central Asia, etc. But I think the timing of this is really important, and it really goes back to a point I've been trying to make over the last few podcasts when I've been on it, that with China falling into step with Russia, uh, we really see a firming up of, um, of sort of an east-west contest. And developing or sort of second-tier countries like the ones in Central Asia, they will be under huge pressure with China's shift towards Russia to to either row back on criticism of the Kremlin's war in, in, in Kremlin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine or literally, you know, get behind Russia altogether. I say this because China holds so much economic and financial influence in Central Asia. And Central Asia, as we know from Soviet Central Asia, has surprised commentators and analysts by being fairly vocal against the Kremlin's invasion. And this has really irritated Putin. What we've seen now in, in, in Central Asia in the last couple of months are you know, business deals being done by Russians in Central Asia uh, an increase in so-called re-imports, the re-import scenario whereby Central Asian states like Kazakhstan, they buy a lot of washing machines, strip them and then send the semiconductors to, to Russia, that sort of thing. And I know there's been a huge diplomatic push in Central Asia. Blinken's been there. Cleverly, the uh, British Foreign Secretary's also been there. Uh, uh, you know, the EU have open lines to all the Central Asia capitals, etc., to try and keep them on side. But I think with this Central Asia summit coming up in China, with Xi in, you know, in the Kremlin telling Putin as he leaves that Russia and China are going to spearhead changes the world has not seen for the last century, we are we are really going to see places like Kazakhstan under huge pressure to fall into line with Russia and China. And that is going to be very difficult for the West to counter. Thanks, James. Just staying in Central Asia, could we go down to Armenia? There's an interesting story there you've you've wrote, written some notes on around Armenia approving plans to join the ICC. Right, yeah. So this is a story I haven't managed to get past my answers at the Telegraph yet, but I'm, I'm still trying. And it's, um, it, it came out last Friday, and it was a decision by the Const- Constitutional Court in Armenia to approve potential ICC membership for Armenia. Now, in Armenia's government initially wanted to join the ICC in 1999, a year after it was set up. But in 2004, the, the Armenian Constitution Court eventually decided that joining the ICC would go against its constitution and therefore blocked this um, Armenia's move to, to, to join it. So it's currently not a member, it's not one of the 123 members. In the last, I think it was 2015 or 2016, Armenia changed its constitution. And the Armenian government asked the Constitutional Court again to look at whether the country could join the ICC under its, under this new constitution. It, it, it asked the ICC to do that, I think, at the end of 2021. Sorry, it asked the Constitutional Court to do this at the end of 2021. And on Friday, it ruled, yes, we can now join the ICC. Now, this the timing is incredible. So the Armenian Constitutional Court approves the country's potential membership of the ICC exactly a week after the ICC has labelled Putin a war criminal. If Armenia joined the ICC, as it's now able to do, according to its own courts, 
it would then be obligated to arrest Putin if he turned up to Yerevan for, for a summit, etc. Now, Putin was last in Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, in November for a security conference. It's one of the few countries that the Kremlin has, you know, you know that Putin can still visit. Uh, forms of its Central Asia, forms of its South Caucasus, etc., is are, are the are the countries that Putin's been travelling to since the war started. Relations between Armenia and Russia have got a, have turned very sour recently, mainly over the Russians, uh, the Kremlin's inability to intervene in um, smouldering conflicts between. Uh, well, yeah, it often heats up, isn't it? Sometimes it's far less than smouldering and very hot. Um, conflict between Armenia and and, and Azerbaijan. And this has really infuriated Yerevan um, under various treaties, deals. But the Kremlin keeps a couple of thousand peacekeeping soldiers, I think, in, 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 in Armenia on the border with Armenia and Azerbaijan and also has a, a large military base there independent of that. And yet it's been unable to stop, according to Armenia, alleged attacks from Azerbaijan. And Armenia has cancelled a major military exercise with Russia this year and has threatened to pull out of something called the CSTO Security Group which is a Kremlin-led security group performance of its states. These are big deals. And now we have the prospect of Armenia joining the ITC just you know, shortly after it's labelled Putin war crime. It's a fascinating sort of juncture in, in, in all this. It's all sort of happened rather accidentally, but the ramifications are incredible. And I was reading, I think it was yesterday, the Kremlin released a statement threatening Armenia with quote, extremely serious negative consequences if it went ahead and joined the ICC. Thank you very much for that, James. Dom, can I come back to you just for any final updates before we go to our final thoughts? Well, the only update I'll give you, it's breaking now. Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morzecki, he has said that Belarus will face further sanctions due to Russia's plan to station nuclear weapons there. So he's just said... Quote, this step taken by Russia, the announcement of the deployment of nuclear weapons in Belarus, will certainly lead to the announcement of additional sanctions. The level of sanctions will be much more severe for the Lukashenko regime, unquote. Now, we know that Lukashenko is under huge pressure. I mean, he's lukewarm in his support for um, for Putin, but he's he's kind of got to go along. But we we heard from Svetlana Sikhanouskaya, you remember the, the leader of the Belarus opposition, depending how you count it, almost certainly won the election that, that in 2020 that uh, uh, that, Belarus, that Lukashenko then stole and she's now having to she's living in Lithuania we, I met her here in London but she said that there is not there was much greater pushback from society in general including many in the security forces against Lukashenko so he he's got to tread a fine line between staying in in line with Putin I mean if he doesn't then he's out of power and putting putting something between him and this groundswell of of opinion from society so he's just increasing the pressure there i thought that was that's quite interesting obviously this is going to um, going to keep going this this idea about uh, russia stationing nuclear weapons just to reiterate nato and the us both separately said yesterday they have seen no indication that russia has started moving nuclear weapons into belarus and nato has said that they've seen nothing that mean that they have to adjust their force posture, conventional or nuclear. So, you know, we talk about it and it's scary talking about nuclear weapons, but we just need to put it in context. And the US and NATO are saying they've not seen anything moving yet. So this might probably is going to be Putin rattling the sabre because he knows that we um, that we get very uh, rightfully twitchy about it. Thank you very much, Dom. Um, 
James, can I come to you first just for your final thoughts? What will you be reflecting on and looking at in the next few days? So just, just to pick up on what Don was saying, I, I think this nuclear, this sort of nuclear brinkmanship I was seeing from Putin and the Kremlin is obviously really important to watch. And and, and like, like Don was saying, it's really important to put in context. And the context, I, I think, needs to be, you know, we need to keep thinking about it and, and repeating it. These This nuclear storage site that the Kremlin's intending to build in, in Belarus isn't going to open until July and it's also going to only host tactical nuclear weapons, which is a fairly important distinction. Tactical nuclear weapons is for use on the battlefield rather than to blow up the city, etc. And also, we have to also remind ourselves that last year, the Kremlin already sent Iskander missile launchers to Belarus, which is capable of firing nuclear-tipped uh, missiles. And also upgraded the better Russia Air Force to be able to fire uh, nuclear missiles. So, you know, there's a lot of optics here and, and, and there was a, they made a big deal out of it. But I'm not so sure that it, it changes too much. And, and, and I think, you know, that's been borne out by NATO and the US as well. But I'll, I'll, I'll certainly be looking out for more on, on, on that subject and also definitely on, uh, definitely, definitely on how China's moved behind Russia, which I think is really the really big deal, is shaping you know global opinion and, and capitals and, and presidential suites, at palaces, etc. About Russia's war in, uh, in in Ukraine and whether the Chinese getting behind it is going to you know force African countries, uh, which take a lot of cash from China and Central Asia, you know Southeast Asia, etc., to also either falling behind it, stop criticising it. Thank you very much, James, for your time today. Uh, Dom Nichols, would you like the very final thoughts? Thanks. Final thought being an apology. So yesterday we were talking about the maritime uncrewed surface vessels that that, uh, last Thursday, we think, attacked Sevastopol and um, we think they were all destroyed. But in the context of that yesterday, I was saying that that they were last used, these things were last used in October last year, and that uh, that resulted in Russia moving its fleet of Kilo-class submarines from Sevastopol into a base in Novorossiysk, which is a, is in Russia, about 50 miles southeast of the Kirsch Bridge. I refer to the dealer, the Kilo-class subs, as nuclear-powered. They are not, of course, they are diesel-electric. And thank you to the, uh, the many, many listeners have got in touch with us saying that, yeah, I've got that one wrong. Very happy to put my hand up there. Had a bit of a senior moment, as we used to say in the army, and uh, yeah, so kilo class subs are diesel electric. They are they are not nuclear powered. They can fire caliber cruise missiles, which can have a conventional or nuclear warhead. So they could, in extremis, fire those kind of weapons, but they are themselves not um, nuclear powered, and they are not. They do not fire intercontinental ballistic missiles. The the, nu- the big nukes that the you know, Brits, French, and and the US have on their nuclear bombers. Uh, but yeah, so thank you for those that got in touch. And uh, yeah, apologies once again. I, I am Spartacus on that one. To talk about the experience of Ukrainian women serving in their country's armed forces during this war, I spoke to Anna Kivit, a Ukrainian sociologist who's currently a visiting research fellow at University College London. Here's our conversation. Anna, thank you so much for your time today. You've been researching female soldiers in Ukraine since 2015. Why did you start looking at this area? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Back in 2015, one of my friends, she went to the war. She was a volunteer. 
soldier and uh, after spending some time there she came back and she said that women have not equal rights with men on the front line and in the military sector in general and it's a structural problem it's very big we cannot change it here and now we need more effort so let's do the research and then let's probably make the advocacy campaign and we'll see how it goes so there were a couple of researchers me and several other women and we we did the first research since then we did a couple of them but the first one was very important and it was also in line with my understanding of uh, the role of the research in the society as it, I'm a sociologist and I love my job I like doing research but I also think that um, the research should bring social change or contribute to it so it was a very good opportunity to provide the empirical data which then be used for the revising of policies and hopefully changing life of women for better. Can you talk a little bit about the conditions for female soldiers back in 2015? When you first started looking, what, what did you find? Back in 2015, policies were different and the presence of women on the front line was not envisaged. There was no proper infrastructure for it. Women were not allowed to occupy combat positions, but also there were forbidden professions for women. So we could see there was a horizontal and vertical desegregation and women on the horizontal level, women were not allowed to occupy some positions, but also on the vertical level, there was no women in decision-making and high decision-making level positions. And basically women who went to fight, they were fighting on the front line, but then they, they had to ensure a proper um conditions for their military service themselves or with the help of volunteers. How has that changed over the past seven, eight years since 2015? What's changed? Well, there are many changes at the policy level for sure. For example, there are no forbidden professions for women any longer. We had a list of 450 professions which women could not occupy. Now it's gone. They can do anything they want, at least formally. Women are allowed to occupy combat positions and the number of women in the military service has more than doubled and number of women officers has increased three times. So there is a progress in this. Could we talk a little bit about just some sort of hard facts and and numbers? How many women do we know are currently serving in the Ukrainian military? Do we know roughly where they are? What are they doing? Uh, yeah, one of the latest numbers that we have is there is approximately 50,000 women in the armed forces of Ukraine and up to 40,000 of them are service women and the rest of them, approximately 10, 12,000 are civilian women. And also we know that there are more women on the combat positions. So they it means that uh, women are before actually when the war started in 2015, when we were doing our research. When more women were occupying something that is called uh, support positions. And now there's more and more women in the combat positions. You mentioned in your first answer about your friend who basically said, look, the military is not set up to deal with this too well. You know, there are structural issues here. 
Do we have a sense of what the issues right now, what women in the Ukrainian military, the issues they face right now in terms of infrastructure? It'd be, it'd be quite good to hear some more about that, I think. Yeah, uh, well, honestly, I think that they do face with different challenges and issues at the moment. As military uniforms still, they have to adjust it to their bodies because the uniform they receive is usually, usually doesn't fit their body properly. Medical healthcare services are not often available and in the quality and quantity they are needed. And then there is another problem is the services for veterans and we will have many veterans after this war. It's probably another topic for discussion, but it's directly linked to, to our topic now. Also, harassment policies, they are underdeveloped. There are efforts to change them. Um, but harassment policies are relevant for women and for men, but probably in the first time for women, because we know that women uh, among the victims of sexual harassment, for example, women are the majority. So harassment policies are still have to be improved. And also women in the military, in their interviews, they mention that uh, they face obstacles in their career development. So it's another area that requires improvement. Anna, throughout this conflict, we've seen lots of news and stories coming out about Ukrainian soldiers' experience in Russian captivity. I was wondering, do we have much of a sense of the experiences of female Ukrainian soldiers in Russian captivity? Uh, yes, thank you for the question. We don't have a lot of information about the women's experience in women's military, Ukrainian military women in Russian captivity. We just know that men and women are exposed to higher risks of conflict-related sexual violence in Russian captivity. We know cases and videos about men being exposed to conflict-related sexual violence and from uh, interviews and conversations with military women, we also know that the risks of sexual violence are very high in the captivity. But uh, we don't know the statistics. We don't know many facts because this topic is uh, tabooed and stigmatized in Ukrainian society and actually in many societies. So the survivors rarely talk about it. Anna, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important to mention or that you want our listeners to go away and understand or think about? Well, it's a very important and very complicated topic. And I don't know if we can fully discuss all the nuances in uh, several minutes. But what I want to say is that it's a big war. And women who joined the army nine years ago and who are joining it now... Um, it's a very big decision and a very big contribution and a very big sacrifice from their side. They can, they are not required to do it. It's their own will. And um, as a citizen of Ukraine, I'm really grateful for what they are doing. But I also think that um, I also hope that the policies for women in the military will be changing and their implementation will be changing because uh, they should not fight against the system at the same time as they are fighting on the front line. They deserve uh, 
proper conditions for the ambulatory service. May I ask, if I can, um, what happened to your friend who joined in 2015? Where, what did their service look like? Where are they now? She continues fighting on the different front line, but she she still contributes a lot to the uh, defence effort. Anna Kavit, thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Emily Hill. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.